Max Verstappen wins again to blow out his championship lead after Charles Leclerc recovers from 19th to 5th with an engine penalty. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 9, the Canadian Grand Prix, powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. Red Bull Racing didn't have the fastest car in Canada, but a Max Verstappen masterclass more than made up for the difference. A crushing wet-weather pole turned into an early race lead ahead of second-placed Carlos Sainz, and the Dutchman went aggressive on strategy by committing early to two stops. Sainz was sure he could hold on with just one fresh set of tyres, but a late safety car neutralised the race with Verstappen in the lead. For 16 laps, the faster Sainz poked and prodded Verstappen's defences, but he couldn't find a way through, the reigning world champion absorbing the pressure faultlessly to win by less than a second. To help unpack Max Verstappen's sixth win of the season, I'm joined by Channel 4 F1 commentator Alex Jakes. Alex, it's good to see you. Thank you for having me, Michael. Uh, Great to be back here and especially great to be back with a race to actually talk about (laughs) with uh, some some events that happened between Lights Out and the Checkered Flag. I mean, terrific. Because the last time I joined you was Monaco Mm. last year which is famous for a TV replay wipe. (laughs) That's the only thing that race is known for. I'm so (laughs) pleased that that is specifically remembered. Like, not Monaco generally, like sometimes the coverage being a bit ropey, particularly that moment (laughs) in that year. And I'm glad we got to talk about it. I can't remember if we mentioned it last year, but, I mean, it was mentioned enough elsewhere, so I think it got the coverage it deserved. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about... Uh, Montreal this year uh, come back for this race uh, on the calendar popular generally popular Grand Prix as well historical race we've missed it over the last couple of years but really the headline from this is Verstappen's won five of the last six races two in a row six so far this year he's 46 points up and that's only on his teammate 49 points up on Charles Leclerc when are we going to start are we concerned now is this the point of concern not if you're Dutch um, <laughs> elsewhere I think, okay, so in general, you know, everyone bangs on about commentators being biased, and I think commentators are. What? <laughs> Shock revelation? Yeah, biased for a competitive world championship. Um, and should we be worried? He's looking very, very secure, isn't he? Because he had a different type of examination um, this weekend, uh, two completely different sessions to deliver in, in qualifying and the race, and every facet of his driving at the moment, he's passing every single test. So it's a it's a huge margin, but the last thing I said on the broadcast um, at the end of the podium on Sunday was heading to Silverstone. We have seen large points leads evaporate <laughs> very quickly, and that was a little bit of a grasp of stay with this one, mainly because the reliability is is creeping towards 90s levels <laughs> of reliability rather than the bulletproof era we've all become accustomed to. I mean, people, maybe Charles Leclerc should be sent a videotape of last year. Well, he wouldn't be sent a videotape, would he? Some kind of download link to last year's <laughs> Silverstone race, and he can take some notes for lap one, depending on how it all goes. Yeah. Good point, though. It was in the 30s, the points uh, margin, wasn't it, heading to Silverstone last year of memory serve. So, you know, not that different. So, there is some hope there. But you raised there, secure, I think, is a really good word to describe this performance as from Max Verstappen because it's tempting to say it's dominant. He got pole, won the race. It didn't seem like there were too many places in the race. We'll go into it in a little bit more detail in a second, of course, where it seemed like he was losing his grasp on this Grand Prix either. But then again, the margin was less than one second. 
the car also didn't seem to be by any stretch of the imagination the car of the weekend, the Red Bull machine. In fact, for a lot of the race, Ferrari seemed to have a bit of a margin there. How much was this a just purely Verstappen weekend? Because the numbers may not suggest it, but certainly the way he was driving certainly made it feel like me like he was making the difference more than anyone else or anything else this weekend. Yeah, I think in qualifying, when you've got a margin over the rest of the field, when he was setting laps out of the box that were a second clear and everyone else was trying to chip back to a second eventually on pole by uh, by basically six and a half tenths to Fernando Alonso rather than you know signs or or anyone that we would expect obviously Charles Leclerc taken out of out of the uh, competitive order with what happened to him and having to start at the back but and then to move into the right yeah he just seems he does seem so secure and and just all year long, it's not been the hyper aggressive mm-hmm. Verstappen of 2021. It's almost been, it's gone from heavy metal to, 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 to sort of a classical symphony. Like even <laughs> with battling with Charles at the start of the year, it's just seemed to be an, an air of calm, an air of, you know, just, just absolutely confident of of everything that he's doing and they've they've had a few reliability troubles and he's got worked up on the radio a couple of times but in the wheel-to-wheel combat and in you know delivering a stint or delivering a delivering a lap under pressure he is in a phenomenal place worth going and checking out last year's saudi arabia highlights and comparing to this year obviously contextually (laughs) extremely different but yes I think it really just serves to highlight the differences we are seeing in that on-track debate. I think you're absolutely right. Last week in Azerbaijan on this podcast, we sort of summarized this idea that we were getting a handle on the advantages of the Red Bull compared to the advantage of the, of, of the Ferrari. It seems like the Red Bull, generally speaking, better in a straight line in the sense it's better at low downforce, not necessarily engine power, whereas Ferrari tends to dominate the corners. On paper, you would have thought this was more of a Red Bull track, though, but that didn't seem like the case. We do have a disrupted weekend in the sense we had rain on Saturday, but Max Verstappen was still on pole, of course. Are we missing something here? Is it still not certain, even nine rounds into this season, what that balance of performance is? You could have a situation whereby, because it's such a a new formula, I still think there's there's a degree of exploration for the teams themselves. Because I feel like, so we've had nine races now, and I feel that, about half of them, the expectation of who's going to be the dominant car has kind of flipped after Friday. Mm-hmm. And then we might have had a, a, an incremental temperature difference and then suddenly <laughs> it's it, it's flipped again. I mean, I think we can just, we can say pretty definitively that um, Ferrari and Red Bull are still uh, a click ahead. I mean, Mercedes, far more competitive uh, this this week and yet still they're about half a second a lap in the hands of Lewis Hamilton off off the two battling for the lead out front uh, in that final stint so I just think they're going to be glued together uh, most of the time I think again you look at Silverstone you can make cases for both cars uh, being the dominant one there I think even if there is an advantage thankfully I think it's in the window where the driver can make the difference which is always what you want in a uh, in a in a championship hopefully that certainly is the case we've got an important month of racing coming up the battle we got 
for the lead of this Grand Prix probably wasn't the battle we were expecting or supposed to have up until towards the end of the race. We will talk about Fernando Alonso later, of course, because we're obliged to when we talk about this Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, this was meant to be Verstappen on a two-stop strategy, hunting down Carlos Sainz on a one-stop late in the Grand Prix. They both made their first stops behind that first virtual safety car, ironically, for Sergio Perez, uh, and then Verstappen made his second shortly before that safety car, which, of course, turned this race a little bit on its head and gave us that last 16 laps that was so dramatic I thought afterwards it was interesting to hear Verstappen talk though because track position ended up being really important here right it's not traditionally a, a track position circuit but given the cars are so closely matched and he's driving so well it tended to be the case he said he'd prefer to be the attacker in these situations and that sort of came through in the way Red Bull approached strategy right like committing very early to a two-stop race when it was still sort of unclear exactly which way it was going to go is that really just a statement on what kind of mood he's in on a weekend where Leclerc wasn't anywhere near him and science, and we'll talk about science in a second, but okay, for most of this season, science has been sort of a second role player. Yeah. Does that just really speak to where he's at at the moment? I think that's where he's been at his entire Formula One career. He'd always be the driver um, wanting to attack. I think he's in his comfortable place there. Even we've, we've talked a few moments ago about, about how he's refined things compared to, to last year. Um, but I think given the fact that, uh, you know, Saturday was was wet and and the track surface in Canada is always a bit of a strange one because of the very cold Canadian winters and the fact that they, they barely run anything else other than Formula One on that circuit. Um, it, I think because of the lack of knowledge, I think Red Bull were always going to that, that two-stop. I think just the lack of understanding, he's speaking to people in the paddock beforehand, Every sentence was, we think this, but <laughs> the data is incomplete. So I think that they were always, given that they pitted so early under that first virtual safety car, I think they were always going to swing to a two-stop because it's one of the uh, lowest overtaking thresholds of the year as well. So yeah, I think they were always going to choose the two-stop the moment that they came in. And if you put your driver in the happy place and he's called Max Verstappen, that's no bad thing. You're absolutely right. In the end, we got a completely different race, almost got a completely different race again around the safety car. And this has become a surprisingly loud talking point, I think, in the last maybe month mm. of Formula One. The interaction with the teams and the drivers with race control, with the FIA. Mattia Bonotto was talking after the race about the fact that the safety car for Yuki Tsunoda was called very late, almost by the point uh, that science had already passed exit. He had about one second, he said. Mathieu Bonotto described lightning-like reflexes from the Ferrari pit wall, <laughs> which is very evocative. Uh, but it did seem to take quite a while for the safety car to come out, to be fair to that description. Yuki Tsunoda was almost out of the car by the time it was called. What's this? I mean, and this is not isolated, as I was saying. There's a lot of sort of back and forth between the FI and the teams. Is this ten How serious is this tension between them, I suppose? Because it's a little bit unusual to have so much criticism of the governing body, really, except for the end of last year. We'll put that to one side. <laughs> Don't mention last year, Michael. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, the, it, I'd say the general state of play, from my understanding in the paddock, um, and this is stuff I've heard firsthand, and this is, uh, yeah, it's it's been backed up by uh, quite a lot of brilliant reporting as well, is Formula One are, and again, speaking with my Channel 4 hat on, I think there is a huge frustration from the teams and Formula One themselves about the manner in which some of the things are being conducted uh, by the FIA. So, for instance, 
I just think there's a little bit of understandable apprehension due to the focus of last year. And to be honest, some of the decisions are just a little bit confusing. The, the Mick Schumacher one in Monaco being, right, the barrier is rearranged. It's tech pro. You know you've got to go and deal with that. You know that tech pro takes a while. to. You can see it's in pieces, right? You've got that information. Um, and it took what eight minutes to get to the the inevitable red flag to repair it. So I feel that they're going by the manual at the moment. Right, yellows, virtual. So many times this year it's gone virtual safety car red flag. And yeah, it it needs to it needs to tighten up. That said, if you've been very publicly fired and you're and you're someone who's replaced someone who has been very publicly fired, we're used to that culture in. Uh, sports management of hiring and firing all the time in formula one race directors we are not and in race directors in other championships anyway we are not so you can understand the human element of being a little bit um reluctant but i think there is a you, you mentioned the safety car let's let's look at the wider weekend uh i think there was a huge frustration with the technical directive to deal yes. with the bouncing that it was announced without consultation with the other teams. The one team principal said, I found out in the airport <laughs> that we were go- going to potentially have to have this completely different metric. And then it was like, oh, we're just going to data gather this week. So it just needs to tighten up. It needs to... And I, to be honest, I thought this year it actually would because uh, that, that Formula One emerged relatively unscathed from Abu Dhabi 2021 was not a given, right? So a mm-hmm. lot of conjecture, but in terms of the boom has continued, there wasn't a ma- there wasn't a mass switch off, there were measures taken, there was a better structure put in place, and yet everyone's a little bit like, where was the safety car? That was obviously a safety car. You know, the Yuki Tsunoda's uh, ripped a wheel off, you're not going to be able to push it. Mm-hmm is the first thing David Coulthard said in commentary because he's looking at reasons why it's going to be eventually upgraded to to a uh, to a full safety car. So that long rambling answer, Michael, basically points to all is not well. The decisions are not particularly fast. It is done with the context that it is incredibly difficult in race control. Um, and I wonder if they have to look at the actual... Race control is a very intimidating place. I went in there in the Charlie Whiting era during a race in Baku, which was one of the more stressful things I've ever seen in my life. Um, And that was a man doing his job via years of experience. Remember, team manager for a championship winning team into a job that he did from 1996 until his sad passing. He was doing it via muscle memory. He was doing it with a strong team. And at the moment, it all feels a little bit, have a think about what we've got to do. Do it by the book. We've done it by the book. Right, we need to upgrade it. It feels a little bit like conscious thought via instinct. And that, I think, is leading to the team's frustrations. The other step back is that the the, the FIA and everyone else not getting on particularly well but we've seen these things in the past and they can easily be rectified the one thing after last year is it's no good everyone walking around saying it's rubbish right because that happened a lot last year Mm. a lot of whinging about decisions where nothing was done if the teams don't like it they have to put their hands up they have to make suggestions because the longer you leave something 
then you might get an increasing problem like we saw last year. We will get back to that bouncing situation a little bit later on as well because every week we're getting a little bit of a new chapter. Just to wrap up on that battle for the lead, though, Carlos Sainz, we touched on him a little bit earlier on. He's been a little bit off the boil, let's say, this season. Hasn't been playing a major role. This was his opportunity, though. He was the only Ferrari driver at the front of the field. Had the pace all weekend, it's got to be said. Didn't win this Grand Prix, but was... Very quick, looking at the lap times throughout Sunday. Obviously, we could see that in those last 16 laps as well. What will he take from that? Is it principally positive, even despite him not winning a Grand Prix that obviously Ferrari would have very much liked and, in fact, needed him to have won? And is this the best we've seen of him this season? I think, without doubt, the best that we've seen uh, of him this season. He seemed to be confident in what he had underneath him, which he hadn't really been at any point this year, he'd been trying to figure out the Rubik's Cube of, of this new Formula One uh, technical package. And he'd never really seemed to... He's such a good, adaptable driver. Um, but he just couldn't wrap his head around what he needed to do. And he's such an intelligent driver as well, which is why he's able to adapt and be so competitive in, in a myriad of different teams. But getting on the ultimate pace when you're alongside someone like Charles Leclerc, not easy. A lot of people... On the once we knew about Leclerc's penalty, a lot of people just generally in Formula One saying this is a big weekend for Carlos Sainz, and it was. And do you remember at the start of the year when he got out of the car and he just finished second? It was a Ferrari one-two, and he would have known that he's got a championship contending car, mm-hmm. at least theoretically at that point, and he's miserable. Because he knew what Charles was doing with the car. He knew what he'd been doing with it in testing. He knew what he'd done with it in the race and across the weekend. And he knew that he was in for the opening races of the year. That And it's proven. He, he was not off uh, in his estimation. He couldn't do what Charles could do. And as a result, Charles the, the 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 closest thing they've got to a championship contender. So he then has to go do his homework. He does his homework. If he'd won the race, I feel like... The, the the pendulum would have completely swung. Everything makes sense. It works. My worry for him is that on the restart, Max Verstappen knew that he had to have extraordinary first sector of the lap. So basically five turns, first five turns on the on the Montreal circuit to keep him behind. And Sainz not once was able to get ahead of Verstappen in the sector that would have completely changed things when he got into DRS country further around the lap. And I think that that would be noted by Matteo Bonotto in the in a straight fight when we needed you to steal one off Max. You weren't able across the entire lap to make that advantage pay. And I think you can read it both ways. Great news that he's on top and he understands the car for the first time this year. But I think incredibly disappointing that he had, you know, 15 laps or so to to make an impression just once in that sector. Remember, he's only got to get one lap. He's in qualifying mode effectively with Max. He's only got to get ahead of him once in that first part of the lap to make sure it's half a second by the time he gets to turn six. And then he's got a chance to force a defensive shape. The fact there was no defensive move from Max Verstappen at any point of that final stint of the race, I think would be a tad disappointing to, to Carlos. Is it unfair to ask how different this might have been had it been Charles Leclerc racing at the front in that situation? Well, he is in a, in qualifying trim, as we know. He's been the class of the field so far this year. So I would be surprised if he had not been able to, to crack what he needed to do. That said, 
all things considered, these cars are heavy. It's difficult. He's seen what happened when his teammate took too much curb in Imola. He knows he can't afford another DNF. He's weighing that all up in real time. He's trying to pass Max Verstappen. He's not been in that situation too often in Formula One. Um, a few second places now, but yeah, I think he, if he got back to that situation in Silverstone, I, I imagine there might be a different outcome, but I think it's more positive for Carlos. I think it, it, it's a click positive, but it wasn't the big performance that the paddock was wondering whether he could put together. Now, looking at Charles Leclerc's race briefly, from 19th to 5th, which was pretty much on Ferrari's target, they were targeting 5th place. He was down there with a power unit problem, or power unit penalty, I should say. He's had many problems in the past, and this is the payment for that. Uh, The pit stop was not perfect. It was about three seconds slow, but even then he was coming out a long way behind the Alpine drivers who he needed to pass to move up to 5th. The safety car kind of helped him out from that. Debatable whether or not he could have stopped a little bit earlier as well, but he was targeting that one-stop strategy. So a little bit of imperfection from Ferrari there still. Fifth, a reasonable recovery. How should Ferrari be approaching this next phase of the season, though? That's what I want to know, because we know the points picture. We know that it's nothing like even only a month ago. I'm looking at my calendar where they were really in a position of strength. What is Ferrari's approach from here? Because it does feel like, despite that car... We know there's penalties on the horizon probably for another engine later in the year that it's slipping away a little bit from them. I would probably draw I would probably draw a line and point to what Charles Leclerc said. Remember when he retired from the Spanish Grand Prix and he was like, right, well, that's a nightmare, but what is important is our upgrade worked. So if they can keep bringing upgrades to the car, that, that's the question for Ferrari. We know that Red Bull are mighty at developing a car. There is a question mark about for whether Ferrari can keep the pace there. Um, you almost it takes away the it, ta- it takes away the scoreboard pressure. They've just got to win races. If if Charles Leclerc can win two of the next four races, then we've got a we've got a competitive championship because then one failure makes mm-hmm. it um, a one race win swing, and then we've got an actual championship on our hands. If Red Bull win the next four races, then. Ferrari are going to be left scratching their heads. I, I think their approach is keep at it. Hope, you know, hope the car, hope, hope that they've got through that phase that everyone has. Is there a wobble between Spain and, and, and Azerbaijan? Or, you know, strategy-wise, they still have to tighten up. Operationally-wise, in the pit stops, they've still got to tighten up. Um, so they can work on that now. And, yeah, ignore the championship, win races win races and to be honest with Carlos and I think he uh, I think I saw some comments where he was accepting his situation in the team he might have to play a support role Um, that I don't know I only glanced at that headline so it might not have been entirely accurate because you know (laughs) sometimes you get things taken out of context but realistically that's the town he's heading to now if Ferrari have any hope of usurping uh, Red Bull for both titles, they're going to have to start to use Carlos tactically um, because they've got to have huge point swings, haven't they? But at the moment, been that, focus on winning the British Grand Prix, focus on winning the French Grand Prix, focus on winning the Austrian <laughs> Grand Prix. And and then momentum is a huge thing in motor racing. And then you've got Red Bull uh, looking to maybe rush updates out. Maybe the update doesn't work. Maybe they're having to try something experimental on the setup. The pressure of winning races is all that Ferrari can do now. 
Let's move on to Mercedes. A really, well, a very Mercedes weekend, perhaps we can say, considering the way their last few weekends have been going. About as up and down as the literal ride quality, I suppose, <laughs> of that car. Lewis Hamilton said, fundamentally, Friday was one of his worst days ever. Sa- Saturday and Sunday, he was almost uh, emotional about his results, which were fourth and third, which is not really traditionally up to his standard, I would have said. I want to talk about the car in just a second, but what do you make of the way he was reacting after qualifying in the race? Because yes, they were top of the midfield, which is kind of the target for them now, I suppose, but he did seem extraordinarily relieved to be there. Yeah, it's almost like a... It's almost like a... A diner that's been used to the finest cut of steak their entire life <laughs> suddenly having to put up with a roadside burger. Although halfway through that analogy, I was like, he's vegan, isn't he? So scrap that. <laughs> never mind. Never mind. I tried the nature's of being a broadcaster. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting, isn't it? That he has had an almost unbelievable Formula One career in that if he wins a race this year, he's won in every single season. That's an mm-hmm. unparalleled access to competitive Formula One machinery in the history of the sport. So, I mean, Fernando Alonso must just glance over sometimes <laughs> in the pen and go, really? Really? You're upset <laughs> with these nine races of uncompetitive machinery? Just glance <laughs> longingly at the last decade. Um Which is why I think everyone was so hyped for him being on the front row, by the way. uh, But Mm -hmm. the thing that always happens when you see an amazing Alonso performance, which is just one of those joyful things in Formula One, (laughs) is my brain always goes, why have we been denied this? Mm. Why why have we as the wider Formula One watching public been denied this for such a long time? He's a spectacular yes. driver. <clears throat> that is the that is the show. That is that is what we're doing. It's a driver's <laughs> championship. And yeah, I know he's a he's a difficult guy behind the scenes sometimes, but what a shame that it's cameo mm. appearances and not, you know, championship campaigns that we've had in the last couple of years. Uh for Lewis Hamilton that's the intensity. That's the the one thing I don't think he ever gets enough credit for is the emotional energy to come back year after year after year after year. All right, it's great when you've got winning machinery, but it <laughs> takes uh, and it's and it's fine if you're being flown in the nice part of the plane or in previous mm. years his own private plane. But still, <laughs> but still, it takes an awful lot to reset and want it again, and that's the same emotional you know desire that michael schumacher had and he's he's accessed it he's still he's still coming back for more and when you hear a guy who's got seven titles and the most wins ever be happy with a third place like it's a significant win it just shows you the desires there and you know, talking about missing out on Fernando Alonso's driving skill for the better part of a decade and, and being able to see what he could do with cars, we've been treated to it. And it, and it's great that Lewis hasn't lost interest because it would have been very easy to down tools and, and go, all right, well, when you fix it, I'll, I'll, I'll plug back in. But the intensity is and the reaction, I think, is one of the reasons that he's won so much. And arrests a slide of defeat to his teammate. And a record-equaling slide yeah. before Canada. Uh, seven races, only done once before. And stopped that from happening. One of his favourite circuits. So, you know, 
Slightly little celebrations count. Interesting place this car is at, though, isn't it? Because we know that it's got this first this porpoising problem, now this bouncing problem. You can hear it on the team radio. It sounds very aggressive. Then stopped having it in a really dramatic way, anyway, in Saturday on Saturday and Sunday. It must be very difficult for Mercedes, other than the fact they're not winning, but. They can see that there is pace in there, right? Like they had the good Spanish Grand Prix. Uh, occasionally, even at the last couple of races, the cars looked very quick. It looked okay, I guess, on Sunday. They're just waiting for all of those things to click together, I suppose. And on the other hand, on this this bouncing front, they did admit by the end of the weekend they'd raised the ride height, which had reduced the bouncing and the car had run all right, which kind of, in a sense, undermined some of the arguments about the FIA needing to step in. Where do you think that team fundamentally is in, in the thought process with this car? Because it must have been very tempting at various points to just kind of screw it up and throw it in the bin, but they just don't seem willing to do it. If we hadn't been in the cost cap era, I think we would have had a B-spec car by the time that we got to, to Silverstone. I think they are contending with two different things. I think the thing that they're contending with is the fact that they assembled an enormous team of people and they, you know, you spend the money and you win eight championships in a row, you're totally vindicated. They don't have that option of just chucking money at the problem. And that's not to denigrate any of their success because Ferrari also chucking money at the problem, Red Bull also chucking money at the problem. But there was this way to spend your way out of trouble that now you've got to move pieces on the board to get yourself out of trouble. So it's interesting that they've had to stick with it. Yeah, I think in a a few years ago, there would have been a B-spec car with no cost cap. So they've had to, but it would be more satisfying, right? It would be a different type of satisfaction if they're able to unlock the potential with the car. I think they're just going to go to circuits that are bumpy and just have to take the pain and just settle for best of the rest. And then, at circuits like Barcelona or circuits like we're heading to next at Silverstone, then they find themselves in, okay, this is one of our tracks. Like you used to get years ago when cars that had no aero performance uh, would rock up at the old Hockenheim, but they had loads of horses in the back and suddenly they'd be vaulted to the front of the field. We'll see that sort of thing with Mercedes. If it's a, if it's a snooker table smooth track, then they're going to turn up. And I imagine they're going to be competitive. And the one thing that gives them hope is that overall race time that Lewis Hamilton put together at at Barcelona was very, very competitive Mm -hmm. once he'd clambered out of the gravel trap uh, on uh, on turn one after crashing with Kevin Magnussen. Now, let's look a little bit further down the grid because we've got to mention Fernando Alonso before we wrap this one up. Of course, we do. Mentioned a couple of times already, but that's just how exciting it was. Seeing <laughs> on the front row of the grid in the West when the driver makes the difference, all of those motorsport cliches, lo and behold, he's there alongside Max Verstappen. Couldn't convert it in the race. That also seems like a Fernando Alonso thing, though, doesn't it? In the latter Fernando Alonso era, something very good paired with something very underwhelming. I did enjoy, <laughs> this is the other part that I really did enjoy about this race. I want to see him do as well as anyone else before anyone gets angry was late in the race stuck behind Esteban Ocon we know he had an engine problem we know he missed that pit stop window during the virtual safety car he wanted to be let by and he described his weekend as 100 times faster than Esteban Ocon's (laughs) which was just such a Fernando Alonso description I guess we've already talked about how it's great to have that reminder of how good he is but how much did that reveal or maybe not at all because this is Fernando Alonso of 
Alpine's improvements? Because it feels it's been a difficult year in a sense for him, hasn't it? There's been reliability problems and all that kind of thing. Mm. Was this more, as much a reminder of his quality as perhaps where that car has moved to? A hundred percent. When he's on the radio, I feel that I feel that in the heat of battle, Fernando Alonso is always one sentence away from saying, "I'm miles better <laughs> than all of you," right? <laughs> Which is the, 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 the central premise of why he keeps coming back is that he believes and Saturday's amazing lap was was testament that he's 40 years of age, for goodness sake. It's one thing if you're doing it in, you know, so looking at the people that are on that list of 40 years of age and are on the front row, Mario Andretti jumps in as a, as a replacement for Ferrari. That was, a, that was the best car in in 82 when he took pole at Monza um Mansell 94 the Williams mm-hmm. uh, Adelaide that's the best car at that stage of the season um you know the Alpine is not the best car so for him to be getting it on the front row at that age he might have a point about being <laughs> absolutely outstanding um so that belief that he is you know up there in the very top tier is is just infusing everything he does. It's the reason he's back. It's the reason that he wants... It's the reason that he's got an engine problem and he wants his teammate <laughs> hauled out of the way. I mean, that's that's emotion, not logic at that point. Um, it, it's, it's just... It's great entertainment. Again, it's that desire to still prove uh, what circumstances not allowed him to. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of the stats and and in terms of he's not been on the front row ever before with, with Max Verstappen, uh, it's great entertainment. And when you have a phenomenal lap, like say, I, I'd be amazed if there was anyone on earth who didn't have a little bit of a fist pump for that <laughs> P two lap. It's just great. You're an old master suddenly showing us all of his skill on a day where he can, on a day where the field gets compacted. That's just outstanding. That's a, that's a great moment in the season so far. Probably the highlight of the entire Canadian Grand Prix weekend. <laughs> um, the one thing I will say about Alpine, this whole win or bust strategy for them was deliberate. It was a conscious choice for the team to chase performance, peak performance, mm-hmm. over reliability and... That's exactly what keeps happening. So they have a very strong car in a straight line. They run aggressive wings in Baku. They've pushed that engine to the limit. Um, and it's occasionally coming back to bite them. But I think it was probably a good call because positions in the Constructors' Championship, despite the fact that a thousand pundits will tell you it's so important, Alpine have the money to go racing, right? They, they are looking for headline results and getting it on the front row apparently with the way that they've structured that development of the car for performance over reliability, getting it on the front row is more important to them at the moment than securing a seventh or a ninth or or, or, or what they would do if they were running it maybe within a margin. So um, good on Fernando Alonso because that was a brilliant narrative point <laughs> of, the, of the Canadian Grand Prix. You raised a really good point there about that Alpine strategy season overall, the idea that they are pushing for performance figure out the problems later. They've got the whole regulatory cycle to figure them out. Similar problem afflicting Alfa Romeo, albeit not of their choosing. It's because they've got the Ferrari engine. And that has been a problem for the whole season. Weirdly, has affected them. And obviously, they must be playing a role in this as well because it's affected them so much more than anyone else from pre-season testing, even up until now. 
Also a double points finish for them. Joe Guanyu scored points again. Uh, in fact, qualified ahead of Valtteri Bottas. Really held his own throughout this race. Two doubled scores for those two teams. I want to compare that to McLaren, though, which, as far as we know, have not taken an especially aggressive strategy into this season, mm. have been very troubled over the course of this season, way behind where they expected to be. Their third race scoring no points, a car that just did not have any pace in it this weekend and some some errors in the pit stops to boot, something they've improved on in the last couple of years. Is it just reliability that's shaping that Constructors' Championship picture at the moment? McLaren's ahead by eight points of Alpine and 15, I think it is, of Alfa Romeo. Is it just a matter of time until they slip down to what painfully might be their actual position in this series? Yeah, it's it's an ebb and flow championship for, for McLaren. Um, I think Daniel Ricciardo deserves a lot of credit for not shouting, look at what you've built me, <laughs> when he's getting... Um, criticized publicly by the team boss and it all got very awkward didn't mm. it for a couple of races down there uh obviously they're paying him a, a sizable salary um but there are some tracks where it's just not working for them at all and they knew that from the start of the year so let's rewind and and repraise lando norris <laughs> for getting that car on the podium in imola an unbelievable performance to do that, even if there was just one uh, dry line. Yeah, I think McLaren are in. I think McLaren are in trouble um, in terms of their constructors' finishing position this year. But overall, the, the, when you saw the cost cap and you saw these regulations introduced, it was a. It was almost purpose built for a team like McLaren to be able to take the advantage, and they've not quite got the concept right. Some tracks, they just seem to evaporate in terms of being able to be competitive. And you've got one driver trying to figure out the car for the second year in a row in Ricardo, But their, their bigger problem is going to be Lando's looking at George in an increasingly competitive Mercedes. And he's looking at Max winning six races so far this year. And he absolutely believes, and there's a lot of evidence from last year, that he's in that bracket along with Leclerc and Verstappen and Russell, and he's nowhere near got the machinery as well. So I think that they've, yeah, I think they'll be looking towards 2023 quite quickly at McLaren because clearly what they've got this year isn't, isn't working. A disappointing race for them in the end when they had hopes earlier on on Friday. A very good race for Red Bull and Max Verstappen. Some damage limitation for Ferrari, I suppose, but this next month of racing four races in five weekends is going to be super important to this championship. Alex, pleasure to chat to you on the Strategy Report. Thank you so much for having me. Just win. That's the advice to Ferrari, and you can't really fault it. Max Verstappen might be in some golden form, but on paper, the run to the mid-season break should favour the Ferrari package. If the power unit can make the distance, striking up some victories might be enough to generate some momentum for a fight back in the second half of the season. Thanks to Alex Jakes for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And don't forget you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. 
My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks to review the British Grand Prix.